You're killing me, Smalls. Hey guys, Colleen Wolf from NFL Network. And look, you may or may not know I'm from Philly. I'm ride or die Philadelphia, but especially when it comes to sports. So you guys need to check out Mike Small on the Killing Me Smalls podcast. This guy crushes it, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say next. Oh, there it is. It's game day. The NBA season kicks off tonight. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode, number 16 of the Killing Me Smalls podcast. As you know, we've had some great local celebrities like Spike Eskin, Tom Moore, and Keith Pompey on the pod, as well as some really major national pundits like Rick Buecher, Peter Vesey, and Ian Rappaport, just to name a few. And today we've got a big one. We've got Legs, Tim Legler. The LaSalle product who is all over ESPN and all over the NBA. He's going to help us break down the Sixers. We also have former Eagle tight end Luther Broughton, friend of the podcast, to talk about the state of the Eagles. Give us a follow. We're on Twitter. It's killing without the G, me, Smalls with a Z. And then you can slide the number two after that. And I promise you some really, really good stuff on Twitter. Also subscribe to the podcast. Again, it's Killing Me Smalls, and give us a review, give us a rating. We're on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. So before we bring on legs onto the pod, a very special happy birthday to our sponsor, Kobe Fryer of Matt Black Kia. Get fryered up and call this guy. I'm telling you, he will help you find a car. He'll help you get out of a lease. He'll hook you up with one of those new Kias. I just rented a Kia Telluride on the road the other day. I love that thing. I'm going to have to get one as soon as my lease uh, ends on this current car that I have. This guy will help you with anything you need car related. They've got tons of pre-owned cars at Matt Black Kia, not just Kias, all kinds of different cars as well. If that's not what you're interested in, they've got a branch in Tom's River, Egg Harbor and Glassboro, New Jersey. Call Kobe at 609-706-2101. Now let's get to legs. All right, we bring legs onto the pod. Legs, as all of you know, appears regularly on ESPN programs such as NBA Shootaround, NBA Fast Break. He's been on First Take, NBA Coast to Coast. He's always on SportsCenter as an analyst. He's on every ESPN radio. He's constantly on the local shows. He is the guy. Tim, thank you for joining the Killing Me Smalls podcast. It's my pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people may not know this, but you rank fifth all time in three-point shooting accuracy, 43%, not bad. Why do you live a half an hour from Ben Simmons and we haven't taught him how to shoot yet? Have you ever been asked (laughs) that before? Yeah, of course. I actually, you know, with some of the local Philadelphia media people who I've become pretty good friends with, have relationships with, I go on all the Philadelphia sports talk radio shows quite a bit throughout the season. And it's actually been presented to me on the air, like for people out there listening and hopefully the Sixers listening, um, you know, to, to, to pitch that. And so I, it, it became a kind of a joke last year where I said, Hey, you know, I'll do it. Um, you know, we can negotiate the price, but I, I, I guarantee if you gave me a summer with Ben Simmons and you forced him to you know, abide by the work ethic that I would impose upon him, which I think has been a problem with some players, not necessarily Ben Simmons, but I know some players who have sought help 
um, or the team has sought help with a guy with a shooting, and then they don't enforce the guy and mandate that the guy show up um, to get the help. So um, if you if you mandate it, I guarantee you that I that I can help him out. So I actually heard JJ Reddick say that. Of, yeah, I heard JJ Reddick yeah. say that on a podcast that all these guys come up to him and say, "Will you help me shoot?" And then they don't show up to the gym. Well, I mean, I was in Washington one year, and we hired a shooting coach. And at the time, shooting coaches weren't very prevalent in the NBA. And we sort of went out and, and stole one from an Orlando. He was in Orlando specifically to work with Shaquille O'Neal in a free throw shooting at the start of his career. And we hired the guy. His name was Buzz Brayman, and he was the he was the shooting guru at the time. And we brought him into Washington specifically to help Chris Weber and guys like that with their free throw shooting. And we had actually number one people shooting team in the league, so he wasn't even there as much for that. He was there to help the big guys. And he was just telling us stories about you know his his career as a shooting coach and the way the teams would cut big checks to him, and then the player that he's supposed to help would come you know walking out of the showers with like sandals on and and uh, you know shorts and a cell phone in his hand and not have any interest in wanting to actually put the work in to get better, and the team wasn't enforcing it. So what's the point? if you don't have a plan set in place, because this isn't something that you're going to do you know, casually, it's, it's going to take an incredible amount of work to change your body's muscle memory. And once you, once you change your mechanics and when guys get into the 19, 20, 21 years old, you're really late in the game to change your shooting mechanics. So uh, it's going to take even more work in that case. So, you know, it's amazing to me, that teams don't prioritize that more because for instance, a guy like Ben Simmons, you're talking about going from a guy that's an elite level talent to potentially an all league player, or maybe an MVP candidate down the road. If he can just be a threat, even from 18 feet, yep. forget the three point line, just be a mid range threat. And with his speed and the way he can get to the rim and the way to open up the floor for his entire team, that's the kind of thing that's transcendent quality to add to your game right now you become one of the you know the greats currently in the game and maybe an all-time great if you can have that if not there's always going to be more that people are going to want to see honestly if we could get ben simmons to shoot 70 percent from the free throw line and he had the confidence to take the ball to the basket as often as he could i think that would almost be enough and then you know the the shooting would be the icing on the cake but by all accounts he has put in the work this season and or this off season, at least if you believe these videos and the and the reports. And uh, he is shooting a thousand percent from three point range as the Sixers open up uh, tonight against the Celtics. What do you think of the makeup of this team? Do you think Giants can win in the NBA? Giants who play lockup D in in two thousand and nineteen? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to, to see um, you know defensively what they're capable of doing with this kind of size and length. They can put a lineup out there that very few teams historically in the NBA have ever been able to put out there in terms of their reach sideline to sideline and with the kind of rim protection they have back there. So defensively, I want to see it. I mean, it, it, the, the question is going to be, can they keep up with the pace? Can they run the floor and change ends of the floor the way they're going to need to if they're going to play two traditional bigs like Horford and Embiid together? Can they cover the ground when they are going to protect the lane and then have to recover out to the three-point line. Are they going to be able to get there in time? Because you know, you're playing teams now that even even teams that don't take a lot of threes are taking 25 to 30 of them a game. The teams that are really high-level three-point shooting teams are taking 35 to 40 of them a game. And then if you're the case of the Houston Rockets, you might see some nights where they take 50. So 
that's the way the league looks. And so defensively, although they're impressive with their size, it's a different style. If this was the kind of team you put on the floor in the nineties when I was playing, that's what teams look like defensively. And it was a more of a street fight. It's not like that anymore. It's spaced. It's spread out. There's not a lot of contact allowed. So let's see if their reach and their size can translate to the way the game is played now offensively on the other end of the floor. So it's going to be interesting to watch. There's no doubt they can be really imposing. It's amazing you think you put a team out there and Josh Richardson as your shortest player at 6'7". I was going to say, I mean, theoretically, you swapped out Josh Richardson for J.J. Redick, who is a lot better on defense and a lot more athletic and should be able to get out to the perimeter. You know, a guy like Ben Simmons can even take more chances now with Horford and Embiid protecting the rim. And if Tobias Harris can hold his own, I've got to think that, you know, being able to defend the three and some of the things you just talked about would be at more of an elite level than than we saw, than we've seen. I mean, this team, to me, seems like a team that could, you know, hold other teams in the 80s on a lot of nights. Yeah, I mean, look, Ben Simmons has already proven, you know, what some of the things he's capable of doing defensively. And with, with you know, guys 6'10 that moves the seat like that, it's very rare. Um, obviously, Embiid, you know, he's, he's a guy that did, annually is going to be in the running for defensive player of the year. Al Horford has already been in that category. Josh Richardson, as you said, is a big upgrade over J.J. Redick defensively, just with his, his foot speed and his length. Um, J.J. was a very, you know, he was a conscientious defender, and he's a really good team defender, and he worked at it. But I saw J.J. take a charge things. last night. Yeah, and there's just certain things that you're limited by athletically, and, and so at that position, you know, I, I was just telling the story, actually, right before I joined you, when I came into the league, I was a big two guard. By the time I left 10 years later, every night I was guarding guys 6'6 six, six to 6'8, six, and that's kind of what the two spot looks like a lot of nights now, so to have a guy with the kind of length of Josh Richardson, it's definitely an upgrade. Now, obviously, he's not going to be as consistent with his three-point shooting as J.J. Redick, but he's also going to be able to do things off the dribble and in transition and getting to the hole that J.J. Redick couldn't. So overall, to me, that's a, that's an upgrade at the position. Obviously, Tobias Harris, she resigned, so that's status quo. Same with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Um, Al Horford and and be together is going to be that's the dynamic, particularly tonight with their opener. That I want to see uh, how that how they mesh. I mean, Al Horford can obviously step out and face up, so can Embiid. So I want to see how they share the court together, and for what amount of time in the forty eight minutes are they out there together? How does that uh, you know blend together offensively? That's going to be a big question mark. I don't love their bench, but they clearly have the best starting five in, in the Eastern Conference. You know, it's interesting. I think about if I were playing against the Sixers and I was coaching a team, I would probably want my team, at least defensively, to go into some sort of a zone and sink down a little bit and challenge Philadelphia to shoot all night. Then I think back of, you know, like what Dean Smith used to say. He used to say, just because you sink down doesn't mean I'm going to shoot threes all night. We're going to get the shot that we want, not the one that you want us to take. What do you think offensively? I I could see stretches of this team struggling to score. Oh, there's no question about it. That's, that's the biggest concern. There's going to be, you know, quarters pretty much every night where they struggle to put the ball in the basket from the perimeter. And that's, that's just going to be the frustration for Sixers fans this year. Now, ultimately, what you hope is that defensively they take a step forward to overcome those droughts because if you're, if you're a mediocre defensive team and, you, and you're also a team that could, that could struggle to be consistent with your shooting, well, those quarters, when you go three for 17, 
from the perimeter. You know, if you're a bad defensive team or a mediocre defensive team, you you now dug yourself a ten point hole in that quarter. What I think this team defensively can do is is make up for it, and they can weather the storm during those times when they're streaky, because they are going to be streaky. And there's no question about it. This is a different looking team with their shooting than what we have seen over the last three years. So that's something that it's going to have to play out. And look, I'm sure Elton Brand is going to be looking at that and he's going to be looking around the league and, and don't think that this, what you see opening night is a finished product that they're going to constantly be looking to tweak their team and add some shooting, particularly if it's a bench guy. Now, obviously you're, you're counting on Tobias Harris to shoot a high percentage on his catch and shoot threes. And he's done it throughout his career. He actually was better historically than he was even last year as a catch and shoot guy. You're hoping that Josh Richardson is a guy that can be at least in that you know 38 to 40% range from the three, you know, a beat can make one and Wolford can make one. And you just hope that they're smart and selective. And when they take it so that their percentages are better, but there's no doubt that's going to be probably the most frustrating element. Uh, and real quickly, just to your point about teams playing them zone. One of the problems with that is if you don't practice it, it's horrific. And most of the zones that I have seen in the NBA have been just God awful because you don't practice it. And so to, throw it in there on the fly in a regular season for one team, that, that's going to be a disaster. And there's going to be all kinds of gaps and openings and miscommunications on rotations to get out the three-point shooters and the, and the middle will be open. And a team like Philly with their size and athletic ability will destroy the zone. Now, look, in the playoffs, maybe it could be effective because you have one team to lock in on. You've got more time between games you can really prepare and hone in and try to put in something, even if you use it for short spurts, that can be more effective. But in the regular season, most of the time when I've seen teams try to play zone for a specific opponent, it usually backfires because they don't practice it. And and it's a, it's a really bad looking zone. So if this team is struggling to score and the starting five isn't working, who do you see as the odd man out around trade time? I mean, you know, there's the internet rumor of Tobias Harris for Devin Booker, which, you know, you're not going to believe that stuff um, in October. But if there is an odd man out that needs to be replaced to make it flow better, what, what could you prognosticate happening? Well, here's one of the problems you have now, for instance, with uh, Tobias Harris. That's a ton of money for a guy like Tobias Harris. And so to find a taker, when you just lock him up to a max deal, that's going to be very difficult to do because, you know, Tobias Harris is a really solid NBA player. There are a lot of people around the league who would, would never have paid Tobias Harris as much as the Sixers did. And I think the reason the Sixers did it is because they are close and they see a window right now, particularly with these two young stars in Simmons and Embiid, They've built a team now that that really it's an obligation to go for it now year after year as long as you have those two guys on your roster. It's no longer like let's we're building towards something. That time is here now. A lot of people have them going to the finals. I have them going to the finals. So you go for it. And so what does that mean? That means maybe you overpay for somebody you already have because you're trying to to make sure that this thing you know you don't have any holes that you're trying to plug right before the season starts. So. That's why they paid him what they did. But as a result, that's going to make it difficult to move him. It's the same thing. Uh, you know, Ben Simmons, honestly, is a guy that if for some reason, if this all doesn't mesh, 
Ben Simmons' name came up a lot last year. It would not surprise me, particularly if he hasn't addressed his ability to be a threat from the perimeter at all. And and if he regresses once the regular season starts, and he's, again, a guy that's got to be inside of six feet to be a threat and a guy that doesn't really want to go to the foul line, Ben Simmons might be the guy that you start looking around the league because he would still hold a tremendous amount of value based on what the rest of your roster looks like. He could be somebody that a team would be willing to give up you know, quite a haul for to get in return. That's interesting. And he did sign a, an extension, but that deal's not certainly definitely uh, reasonable and one that, that a team could absorb. You know, um, I'm going to quote one of your old colleagues from ESPN, Bill Simmons, who said this week on his podcast, I love the Sixers as a regular season team, but I think Brett Brown ends up costing them the title. Where are you with Brett? Um, so I think my, my biggest thing with Brett, I think, I don't think Brett has put enough of a stamp on the offense in terms of mandating guys being in certain spots on the floor at certain times in the game. And I thought you saw that really manifest itself in the Toronto series. You, you can't be someone offensively that's a spectator during the biggest times in the game and just hoping that these guys make great decisions. Well, those three shot clock violations at the end of game seven were a little scary. Uh, yeah, you don't have to remind me. I did a touch screen on Scott Van Pelt show yep. that night about those three possessions. Uh, and that's, that's a great, you know, summation of what I'm talking about. And obviously we're pointing to the biggest you know, stretch, but there were times throughout the season when I'd watch them and I'd feel the same way. I think he promotes, ball movement he promotes player movement he promotes fast pace he he has certainly had lets guys have freedom um and have the green light to feel comfortable to shoot the basketball those are all positive qualities from a coaching standpoint what i don't see is wrinkles into their offense to take advantage of what ben simmons can do well like there are very few times in the course of a game when you see anything where ben simmons has a set where he's not just running up the floor and, and deciding, hey, you know what, maybe I'll go down to the post in this possession, and then he gets pushed out to 15 feet, catches it, turns, faces up in an ISO position that he's completely uncomfortable with. No, I'm talking about a set, a wrinkle in your offense where this particular possession, I want Ben Simmons on the right block so that he can turn to the middle going to his left hand, or I force a team to double team, and he's the best passer on my team at 6'10". He can now get the ball to someone for a great shot. But I'm going to start the set in a way to make sure he catches it on the block, not at 15 feet. Like a cross block-to-block screen, bring him to the right block, start him at the elbow, get an up screen, roll it into the post. And it's clear that that was a set running to take advantage of Ben Simmons in the post. Like You never see that. Nope. Bet, uh, you know, Joel Embiid is another example of just you know allowing him to off the rail all over the court when he's virtually unstoppable in the post. That's something that has to be mandated and has to be more of a wrinkles within your offense at particular times to take advantage of the, the skill sets of the players and what they're comfortable with and, and where they can be most dynamic. I just don't think they do that enough, and so I, I hesitate, you know, to have confidence that they're going to be able to do that in a tight situation. And if I have you know, one hesitation about their ability to get this done and get across the finish line, that would probably be it. 
Yeah, and I, my biggest concern with Brett, aside from what we just talked about, and especially those three 24-second violations, or shot clock violations, rather, is uh, why don't they ever take advantage of mismatches? I mean, when the Sixers played last year, J.J. Redick would come in, the other team would target him. The Sixers don't ever do that. They just do what they feel like doing at the time. And sometimes, like you said, it, it's Joel Embiid just feeling like he wants to go shoot a three. And I have concerns about that. No, I just and I agree with you. And I, I, I think there are other coaches that fall prey to it as well. I think I, I said the same thing about, and he's a good friend of mine, but I said the same thing about Scott Brooks for years in Oklahoma City. And I can say the same thing about Billy Donovan. And I'm not saying you know, coaching a guy like Russell Westbrook the easiest thing in the world, just in terms of his mentality and the way that he plays. But I felt like those guys were spectators to the action at the biggest moments. And so for me, if, if Brett Brown, you know, wants to really give this team the best opportunity to get this thing across the finish line and at least win the Eastern Conference and get to the finals, and maybe, maybe you run into a team that's better. Maybe you run into the, to the Clippers, whoever it may be in the finals, and you can live with that. But to get them there and get them through the East, which I'm talking get through Milwaukee, get through Boston, get through, you know, those teams, Brooklyn, whoever it may be then I think he has to take more ownership of the offense and things like we're talking about. You know, take advantage of mismatches defensively. Mandate where guys are going to catch the basketball. Mandate that you're, you're, you know, this isn't going to be a possession where I'm hoping that these guys make great decisions. You, you just can't do it. And if I'm Brett Brown, I'm certainly not going to go down with that because he's going to be under a lot of pressure this season. If this team underachieves, I think Brett Brown's in serious trouble. Um, if they go out in the second round of the playoffs or, you know, regular season, you know, maybe they don't win the East and have the best record. And I don't think that's going to necessarily jeopardize his job. But if this team doesn't at least get to the conference finals and then have a six or seven game series, if, if they end up losing that, he still could be in trouble. But if they lose in the you know first or second round of the playoffs, I think Brett Brown's in serious trouble. So I, I'm him. I'm not going down that way. I'm going to have more ownership in the offense. If I have a vision of, of how we have to manage the most important possessions in the game. Yeah, I'm going to hope he knows that. Listen, Legs, I know I, I told you I wouldn't keep you too long. I, I sent out a tweet yesterday that you were going to be on the show, and I got some mailbag questions. Can I hit you with two quick questions before we wrap up? Yeah, sure, absolutely. All right, the first one, shout out to my son, Jared Small, big Laker fan. Wanted to know that why, if the Lakers are going to regret not putting Kyle Kuzma in the Anthony Davis deal instead of Lonzo Ball. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think ultimately the way that they're going to play, I think they're, they're it's, it's going to be more, it would have been more difficult for Lonzo ball to have an impact in that offense. The ball is going to be in LeBron James's hands, period. And any team that LeBron's on, that's what's going to happen. So even this talk of running the offense through Anthony Davis, I, I, I don't think that's actually going to be the case. Uh, and Kyle Kuzman to me is a perfect third option for them because he moves exceptionally well without the ball. He can slash, cut, shoot it. He he he's a guy that's going to be able to put up you know sixteen to eighteen points a game really pretty easily playing with two guys like that to draw that much attention. So I actually think they're they're going to be better served with Kuzman than Ball. And last question for you: Who is your favorite all-time teammate and why? That's a really tough one. Um, I would say probably I'd go with Chris Mullen. Albert Cheney would have been my, option 1A, my teammate in Washington for four years. 
But I will go with Chris Mullen in Golden State, and I think the biggest reason was because I was a guy that always prided myself on being the hardest worker on every team and a guy that lived in the gym and just loved the process of getting better. And I firmly believe no one took more shots than I did in the course of the years I was trying to get to the NBA. Um, and then I met Chris Mullen, and I realized that there was a completely different level that you could get to in terms of your your work ethic, your preparation, your reps, you know, how, how much time you spent on your craft. And so for me, and, and you know, he, he became, you know, a lifelong friend. We've maintained a great friendship over the years. But to, to be around a guy like that that I looked up to so much, who was, you know, he was at St. John's, I was at LaSalle. So he was a, he was a contemporary. Um, and then if you want to have the career he did, I just idolized the guy. And then now to be a teammate, be in the same locker room with him and observe his daily work uh, was really something special. That's an awesome answer. Legs, thanks for joining the pod. Oh, anytime, Michael. My pleasure. This is Ian Rappaport from NFL Network. You're killing me, Smalls. Stay tuned for more from Mike Small. Okay, so the Eagles are coming off a drubbing of the Dallas Cowboys, and we've got to talk some football. We're going to bring on Luther. Can I call you friend of the podcast? Of course. All right. We're going to bring in former Eagles tight end Luther Broughton who uh, I've known for a while through a really, really good friend of mine. Luther was actually drafted as a fifth-round pick by the Ray Rhodes era, and then he was and then he was sent on to uh, – where did you go after that? You went from the Eagles to Carolina, right? And then, Carolina. And then Andy Reid traded for you. And then back to Carolina, so I did the old Michael Scott. Snip, snap, snip, snap. <laughs> so I, I went back and forth twice. It was – it was odd, so odd that that happened, but because it was like four different coaches. Like I played for so many different staffs and so many different teammates. When when I went to Philly, Ray Rose was the head coach. When I came to Carolina, Don Capers was that was the head coach. I got traded back to Philly when after Andy Reid became the head coach, and after I was a free agent, I signed back with Carolina. Seifert was head was the, was the head coach. Now, Seifert was the coach that traded me back to Carolina, but then re-signed. That was just odd. Yeah, George Seifert, I'm in the business world, and uh, so I do this this on the side here, as you know. And in the business world, um, if you're in sales and you take over a territory that's doing really, really well, and like it ends up, yeah, and it ends up winning, uh, winning an award, we'd say that you got the George Seifert Award. You just kind of stepped in it. Dude, so so my guy, one of my friends were were he had this whole discussion about coaches and whatnot, and he kept bringing up Seifert, and I said, dude, do you want to go? Just take like fifteen seconds and Google George Seifert staff in 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 uh in San Francisco. Google his coaching staff. Are they all head coaches now? Dude, so let, let me I'm, I'm going to guess you. you're talking Mariucci, you're talking Gruden, you're talking Dude, Andy Reid. Who else? I'm not even talking those guys. Let, let's start with with Mike, with Mike Holmgren. Shanahan. Dude, well, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's, that's Bill Walsh's tree. That's Bill Walsh's tree. So um, I, I'm, I'm giving Seifert too much credit. So... 
Seifert had Ray Rhodes, and let, let's go back to the the guys that you said. You said um, Gruden. Yep. Uh, who else did you say? Mariucci. Mariucci. All right. He Shanahan. Mariucci, Ray Rhodes, Shanahan. He had um, Andy Reid. Was Dick, Dick Geron on that staff? Was Andy Reid on that staff? Yep. So his, his his I mean so let he also had Carroll he had had Pete Carroll on that staff wow his staff was so stacked I mean he could just sit back there and I'm not saying he he didn't do anything okay but but well, let's but be honest though he took over he took over a multiple Super Bowl winning team and Bill Walsh left him a great team and he you know kind of like Barry Switzer Correct. taking over for Jimmy Johnson. But anyway, we don't need to get into that right now. Let's get into these dang Eagles. Let's get into these Eagles. So, man, you know, Doug Peterson guarantees a victory. And they get their butts whipped on national television. Did you watch that game? And what are you thinking about this team right now? So so let's start with the quote-unquote guarantee. Uh, whatever, call it what you want to call it. I think he was trying to put some confidence in his team. But, of course – the world we live in today, that's going to be a guarantee. That's going to be bulletin board material, which is fine. If your players back it up, not only did they not back it up, they got their asses handed to them, like royally. It wasn't a hard-fought battle. We started the game catching a pass, fumbling, Dallas scores. We threw a horrible interception, Dallas scores. And then it's like, eh. We don't care anymore. I, I'm not saying guys quit. They just, they played like they played like butt. I don't want to use too much language. <laughs> they they played so horribly. Well, you already said asses, so you can say it again. You don't have to switch to butt. Uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but what, let me ask you this: Have you tell me? Everybody talks about the locker room, right? You know, there's a lot coming out about. You know, there's a Wentz and a Foles faction, an offense-defense faction, and all. Have you been in? Give me, give me a description of what a bad locker room's like. Have you been in a bad locker room? I've been in uh, some good locker rooms, man. Uh, I'll tell you that. When I was in Philly that first year, I was too young to even know what it was. Anyways, I, I was trying to tread water, and I get to Carolina. And uh, we have Dom Capers and a, and a team that's not so great, but the guys that just got along, we had Berline, we had, uh, I had Wesley Walls, who I wanted his job. And every day he tried to teach me something that would help me take his job. We had guys like that on that team. Then I get traded back to Philly, and that was the closest team I had ever been on. It was me, McNabb, uh, um, Chad, Hugh Douglas, Barry, this guy, guys around the same age, you know, and we'd hang out a lot together. Then you, even and then the veteran guys would look out for the younger guys. You got have people like uh, Troy Vincent, who we would always call uh, me and uh, one of my boys would call him old man because he looked at us over us like we were like his nephews or something like that. That team, 
I knew they were going to go places after I left because it, they played for each other and it, everybody. We were like a huge, huge family. So you so, never had a uh, you never had a toxic locker room. I've never had a toxic locker room. Now I came to Carolina at the end of that season when when Kerry Collins got suspended for was saying the N-word at a party around Moosehead. You know, it was like kind of a joke. It was like music involved or whatever. But Moose broke his jaw or punched him. I know he had a, he did have a, had a broken jaw from, yeah. from the, from a hit, but still. So I came towards the end of that and that worked itself out. That team worked itself out. I've never been on in a fractured locker room and it's interesting to see and hear about a team that just won a Super Bowl a few years ago, how it's fractured behind the whole quarterback situation. Well, that thing uh, just kills know. me, though, because, I mean, it's – look, Nick Foles did a great job. But I think if you're drafting a team tomorrow, there's no way you're, you're taking, taking Nick, Nick Foles, Foles over Carson Wentz. I've had this conversation so many times. Nick caught fire, right, in that playoff. Nick was – Horrible those first couple games. You remember that night, that Monday night or Sunday night game against the Raiders? Listen, I went to the Atlanta game, the first game of that playoff run, and I texted oh, my buddy during I that game. Too. It was halftime, and I texted I texted my buddy, who is our mutual friend, who's a sports agent, and I said, "This is some of the most tragic quarterback play I've ever seen." And the next thing you know, he catches fire in the second half, and never and never cooled down. And he never cooled down. He had two and a half super hot games, right? So yep. then last year, the beginning of the season, he didn't look that great. And then uh, Wentz gets hurt. Our defense is playing. We're playing guys off the street in the secondary. So then our defense starts to get healthy and make plays. And Nick Foles comes back in and everybody says, see, it was Nick. It was, I'm not hating on Nick. I love Nick Foles. But it wasn't just Nick. It was the team getting healthier. And it's frustrating to hear people act like we didn't have Nick at the start of his career. We don't know who he is. Now, mind you, Carson is not proving anybody totally correct either. I mean, Carson is... uh, He's not a young guy anymore, we, so we can't use the young excuses. He'll fix that. He's still high on a lot of throws. The throw last week, Aguilar should have at least left dope. Right? That was awful. That was that I was think, that was I like your boy Todd Pinkston back in the day. Didn't even pull well, his arms out. Well, Todd was across the middle, and he he might not have gotten his head hit. I just don't think uh, Aguilar tracks the ball well in the air, and I think he completely missed it until the end. But, but but listen to this, though. You've got a receiver crossing the hash, and you've got an a, 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 a outside receiver on, the le- on that left side who's occupying that cover three corner. It wasn't a cover two. Carson had the whole half field to put the ball right on the receiver, and it was an inaccurate throw. It wasn't a great effort, but... You had the whole side of the field to just lob the ball, just put it out there and make the play. Instead, he overthrew him. Did he overthrow him by a lot? No, but it shouldn't have been an overthrow. 
I mean, that's just my opinion about about that one. Now, listen, Carson did not play well on. He did not you play did well. Not, he didn't play well the other night. But I, I can give you several other examples this year where he's played great and the team's been awful. I think I, I think he's the least of their problems. He is, and, and you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to continue to say, but he's the least of our problems. He's not the problem with with, with us. Yeah. And, and it's it's just it's disheartening watching the this team play. So you talked earlier about about cohesion and that team in 2017 was really close and Doug yeah. Peterson did an incredible job. Do you think you can get that back in the middle of the season? Can no, they turn it around? That That's not something you get back. Wow. It's either, it's, it's either there or it's not. And, and you don't try to get it back. It's natural. It's, it's either there or not. And, and, and that's fine. That's fine. Your team doesn't have to be super close, but you everything is corrected when you play play well. Right. They're not playing well, so it doesn't matter how close they are. You can have people talking to anyone in the media. You can do whatever you want to do. If the team is playing well and you're winning and it shows, it won't matter. It won't matter at all. But but this team isn't playing well, and that's the problem. Luther, last question for you. You watch the NFC East, and Washington is hot garbage. Um, the Giants are just trying to figure it out. Dallas can lose yeah. to the Jets and then come back and beat the Eagles. You still think it's up for grabs for Philly? So, so I don't think the other teams are that great and we're only one game back, and that's the only reason it's up for grabs. The other teams are just not that good. So Dallas beat the hell out of us, right? Fine. Dallas kicked our butts. Fine. But do you think Dallas is all that good? Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, they are. They were really good against a crappy schedule in the beginning of the year, and then when they faced they some good really teams, they good looked awful. Crappy schedule. They played decent teams and looked awful, and they lost to the freaking Jets. I don't think Dallas is that good, but I, I don't think we're that good either. So to answer your question, we can. But what are you see, what are you seeing from this team that tells you we can? I see Carson Wentz being really good, and I see, it, unfortunately, Deshaun Jackson's injury has really hurt because he stretched the field and made um, Alshon Jeffrey better. I think if you just breathe on Deshaun Jackson, he continues to be hurt. I don't know what's wrong with him, but I think that's really really hurting the offense. And That's I think really the defense hurting. is terrible. The de- I think the defensive backs are some of the worst I've ever seen. I've never seen anything this bad. And, and uh, the kid from um, Washington. Sydney. Wow. What a bust, wow. huh? Yeah, wow. He's... Can you, uh, so put it like this. You know we, we needed a back, right? Yep. To look at all the backs we could have had in that draft. Yep. Where we took Sidney Jones in the second round. Dalvin Cook would have been pretty good, huh? 
But guess what? We we didn't we couldn't have gotten down. Let, let's forget about Dalvin because we took Sydney after Dalvin was taken. Do you see the other running backs in that draft? Alvin Kamara was in that draft. He's pretty good. So is Kareem Hunt. He's pretty good, although may not be so may not have the best personality. No, no, but let's just. I'm, I, I, I'm not saying I want him, <laughs> but um. That draft had so, so that was the uh Alva Kamara, uh, Kareem Hunt, the kid from um San Francisco, Brita, Brita, yep. Brita was undrafted, yep, Cohen. I mean, Lin- look at Philip Lindsay back. was around, right? Wasn't he an undrafted free agent that year? Or was that the next We're, year? No, that was the next year. Philip okay. Lindsay is in his. Uh, you are correct. Yeah, but, but but that draft had Kristen. McC- well, he was gone. Joe Mixon was he gone? Marlon Mack. He was. Marlon Mack's uh, really good. Marlon Mack is really really good. Alvin Kamara. I already said that. Uh. Well, the bottom line is you're right. They could have gotten a lot better than having a guy sit for a year waiting for him, and now he kind of sucks. No, he sucks. I mean, we have both of the uh, the Green Bay backs. You had uh, James Conner. We took Pumphrey. Oh. Aaron Jones. Yeah, it's I mean, funny. Howie Roseman was the genius of the world a year ago, and now uh, his drafts are really getting scrutinized. So. It's interesting. Right. I think that if he would have made it the trade for uh, uh, what's the guy's name from Jacksonville? Yeah, but do you give up two first round? Yeah, picks Ramsey. That's it. I'm sorry to escape me, but yeah, I, no, I, I agree. I think um, I think they really counted on a lot of folks. I think the Malik Jackson injury really hurt because they're not getting pressure on the D line, and he opened it up a little bit for Fletcher Cox. Um, I think no, there's just been a lot of unfortunate events. Yeah, we, you know, you can't continue to to uh, beat the injury devil every year. We were able to kick the injury devil's butt. The, he he was getting to us, and we would have another guy there. You just can't continue to do that over and over and over and over. Unless you're Bill it's Belichick. Unless you're in New England, they somehow figure it out every year. Yeah, they figured out. I don't know how they just continue to win. Well, Luther, we're going to have you back on the podcast. I I really thank you for joining, and uh, hopefully we have you back again soon. Yeah, you better have me back. I will have you back, believe me. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to the Killing Me Smalls podcast. We will have another episode next week. Have an awesome week, and make sure to tell all your friends, subscribe, Killing Without the G. Me, Smalls with a Z, and give us a subscription, give us a rating, and uh, you hear all kinds of cool stuff from guys like Luther Broughton. Take care, everybody.